0: Fasten your seat belts, it's going to be a bumpy night.
1: Live from Las Vegas, it's time for you to be Talking Movies with America's most award-winning film critic, John Barber. You're being, John, you're being so gentle. I've heard you give reviews and you're so rough, you're saying. <laughs> How would you have evaluated your own work uh, in some of the films that you did prior to, uh, <laughs> prior to The Long Shot? I mean, Much I like... better than you, my friend. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Our next
2: guest is one of those rare talents who has something to say and can say it funny. He's a writer-performer on The New Laugh-In and one of the most popular, outspoken, and entertaining personalities on the local news here in Los Angeles. He's won a half a dozen Emmys as a film critic and host of his own shows. Let's welcome Mr. John Barber, right over there.
1: Welcome to Talking Movies, episode number four, My Lucky Number. Doug, how are you today?
2: I'm doing wonderful. Thank you, John. I I appreciate you asking.
1: Well, I always am concerned because I love to hear that beautiful Orson Welles voice. In any event, have you seen any good movies lately? And if not, what was the last good movie you saw?
2: I have not seen a good movie in a long time. Probably the last Good movie I saw. I liked Goodwill Hunting. Was that?
1: Oh, wow. (laughs) That's a long time ago. (laughs) But it was a fabulous film. You know, I stumbled, having seen a thousand films as a film critic, when I stopped doing it, I stopped going to the movies. But the other night, I stumbled. uh, I get Showtime. And I stumbled across a really interesting movie. Now, I must tell you, I cannot watch another World War II movie. But this one was about the other side. And so I decided to watch it because it starred Christopher Plummer. And it was called The Exception. And I must say the film itself was an exception because it was a surprisingly really good film. It's four years old, stars Christopher Plummer. It's about... The Other Side, and it's an edgy, edgy thriller with a very, very unusual love story that sort of reeks of a true story. So if you get Showtime, Doug, or folks watching, and you stumble across it, it's called The Exception, and don't miss it. And you know, Doug, one thing that we're all aware of in television and movies is if something works, then Hollywood is quick, to try to duplicate it. We're all well aware of that. As a matter of fact, do you remember a famous actor comedian by the name of Fred Allen? I don't. Well, Fred, well, you're too young. Fred Allen was on an equal with Jack Benny. Now, you must remember Jack Benny.
2: Oh, of course.
1: Well, uh, Jack and Fred had the top 10 radio shows during the 40s. And they both made made a number of movies. But Fred Allen made this observation about Hollywood because there's so many remakes. He said, Hollywood is a community of termites that is constantly chewing on its own backlog. Which is true because from my years on Hollywood, I can tell you there are very, very few original typewriters. But there are thousands of Xerox machines. So the one thing that surprised me when I was a kid is there was a puppeteer on radio in the movies who was very successful. His name was Edgar Bergen and his puppets were Charlie McCarthy and Mortimer Snerd. Does that ring a bell to you? You're silent so I guess it doesn't ring a bell to you. Well, they were never duplicated, which surprised me. And puppets didn't become stars until they became a mainstay on television. There was Howdy Doody. Do you remember Howdy Doody? I do. Well, there you go. Uh, he was huge. But then the biggest of all, of course, were the Muppets. Jim Henson's The Muppets. Uh, the most successful puppets and puppet shows ever. But to me, by far, the most creative the most colorful, the most diverse, and the most original were Sid and Marty Croft. Do the, those two names ring they a bell? They do. To you? They do. I must tell you, they were incomparable with their work. Now, sadly, Sid Croft died two years ago, but his younger brother, who is eighty-four, is Marty Croft. And he's still very alive and very active and very creative and still talking to people. And the person he's going to talk to right now is yours truly. So here's Marty. Marty, Marty, thank you so much. I can't tell you how delighted I am to be talking to you for a number of reasons. I got a lot of things to talk to you about. But first off, where are you and how are you?
2: Well, I'm above the grass. I'm at CB, CBS Radford in Studio City where my offices are, and I'm okay.
1: That's... And you look,
2: you look good, and I'm happy to be with you. You are always one of my favorite people, first class.
1: Oh, well, I... bless your heart, because you're going to be absolutely stunned and surprised what, I, what I'm going to say to you, um, and, that, and that is this. I have always been a fan from the time I was a kid. Now, you and I are close to the same age, so we saw probably the same mood. Black and I, don't <laughs> and I don't know. I'm
2: 111. I don't know.
1: So that in a minute. But I have always been a fan of puppets and puppeteers and uh, comic characters for the simple reason is they always seem to be able to say something that ordinary humans can't say. Now, if you look at my wall... You'll see all kinds of pictures of famous personages up here. But what you don't see is that I have five puppets sitting around my office. Now, I'm going to say this to you. In all sincerity, Sid and Marty Croft and Jim Henson, who created the Muppets, you two are the Citizen canes of puppeteers. You are the Orson Welles of puppeteers. But I'm going to tell you why I prefer Sid and Marty Croft to Jim Henson. Okay. I hate to say it, but I've got to be honest with you. The Muppets are delightful, but they've been delightfully the same for 20 years. They never change as did Jim Henson never changed, even when he gave up on America and moved to England. But your life And your work with your brother, Sid, has been so diverse and so interesting. I never, ever watched the Muppets, even when they had famous talents on that I admired. But once I turned into you and your brother's work, it was so colorful and edgy, I could not turn off. Now I'm going to say this before I ask the first question. Marty, if I were to compare you and Jim Henson, to Walt Disney characters, you and Sid are Bugs Bunny and Jim Henson is Mickey Mouse. I much prefer Bugs Bunny because he was the rascal and you guys were always the creative rascals. So what I'd like to know is how did it all start? Where were you born? Uh, Tell me a little bit about your family life, some of the things you wanted to do as a kid. And by the way, is Marty your birth name or is that a show business nickname? You know what? That's for you to find. If you haven't found this
2: out by now, I'm not telling you. Well, <laughs> I did
1: find out, but I wanted you to tell us.
2: Well, you know what? I, I'm not sure what anything was because when we came from Europe, I was born to Montreal. You know, families, parents, they never told you anything. You know, there was never any sharing or anything. Everything was a big secret. So I have probably less information than you've got. I lived in Canada for about 11 minutes after I was born. And we moved to Old Orchard Beach, Maine, and then to Providence, Rhode Island. And then I got my education in college in the Bronx. And my major was
1: survival. So I survived the Bronx. (laughs) Well, what I did read about you is that Your brother, Sid, had seen the movie Marty, written by Patty Shaevsky, the most brilliant screenwriter in Hollywood, having done Network, the most intelligent film ever made in Hollywood. And he said that that's why he called you Marty. So if he nicknamed you Marty, what was your birth name?
2: My birth name was Marty.
1: It was? Yeah. Oh, well, that's... All and he, his, did
2: was go, he did come up with a name, but my brother always came up with something that was very unusual, strange, and I used to have to follow, because he was my older brother, what he was talking about. But, you well, know, I'm the baby.
1: Well, now, when you, when you were a youngster living in Montreal... I would have imagined that you and Sid would have wanted to be the next Richard Brothers playing for the Montreal Canadiens.
2: Well, you know, I was a Maurice Richard fan, and it wasn't because of Sid. I had another brother who, uh, who was a, a Can- Montreal Canadiens fan. But we never, I never walked around Montreal until much later, because as I said, I wasn't kidding, left there like probably in the first six months of a life, and then went to Maine. So I never really spent any time in Montreal, except when I went back for the comedy festival. That was the first time, but we also did a movie, uh, two movies in Canada that uh, brought me to, uh, Montreal, to uh, uh, Toronto and Vancouver, and not to Montreal. So didn't really have that much connection with Canada.
1: Well, uh, how, 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 did, how did you and Sid, now Sid's the older brother, did he become interested in puppeteering or puppets because maybe he saw a movie? Because when I was a kid in the 40s, I saw every black and white movie there was. And I only remember seeing two films with puppet characters in them that I fell in love with. And you know who I'm talking about, Edgar Bergen with Mortimer Snurd and Charlie McCarthy. So how did, did your interest in puppeteering come from the fact that your brother did it or your father did it or a movie did it? Oh, I was told that my father did some of it, but Sid was out
2: on the, you know, he was out with his puppets at Ringling Brothers Circus and he's close to 10 years older than me. So I was still going to school when he was out there doing his act in America. And then he went to Europe. And when he went to Europe, I took some of the puppets he left behind and went and played clubs. We played the Catskills. I did go back, you're right, when I was about 14 and played Montreal and Quebec City. Uh, But mostly, uh, it was my brother that did it. And then one day he called me. I graduated from school. And I was actually selling cars, Fords, at the time I was (laughs) 18. I was 18. I sold 300 Fords in one year. Wow! I didn't, I didn't take no for an answer. <laughs> he needed help. He was on the road uh, with Liberace, and uh, and he was the opening act. And my brother asked me if he if I could come up and help him because the the guy that was working for him was leaving. You know, so I did go up. I went to uh, it was New Jersey. Uh, I can't think of the name of the town. It was a small town in New Jersey, not Atlantic City. And he was appearing there with Liberace.
1: Marty, yeah. if, 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 if he was good enough to be the opening act for Liberace, he must have had a terrific act. And why would he need your help if he already was an opening act for a star?
2: Well, you had to be there. You had to. <laughs>
1: there was so much crap that had to get moved, you know,
2: this was, look, if we made 1500 a week, it cost us 2000 to get there. Oh, you know? wow. So my brother was broke at the time. And then I think what I did was, you know, I, hey, you always said that I was a better puppeteer than him. But I think what I did was I kept things together so we could survive. And oh, survival
1: my. is everything
2: until you prosper. So, and
1: when did you begin to prosper? Because I think the first time I heard about you, it was in around 1960, 61 or 62. I think you guys were doing a tour of something called Poupe de Paris. Am I pronouncing that correct?
2: Yes, Le Poupée de Paris.
1: What on earth was that and how did it come about and was it the first time you guys started to make a decent living?
2: Well, I don't know if we ever made a decent living. Let's get that straight. Uh, you ask me, what time do we start to prosper? What time is it right now? 11 o'clock. So, so, so anyway, uh, you know, so when labor pay happened, my brother did. You see, I give my brother a lot of credit. So I'm a, I'm a good brother. And I tell it the way it is. And my memory is still good big time so I don't have to worry so far about dementia sometimes I kind of hope I got dementia <laughs> I could tune everybody out but anyway so Le Poupés came out of my brother's head not by accident he was at the Lido de Paris with his act in Paris and that was the big Follies Bergère Lido show that ultimately wound up in Vegas so he said to me I was staying with him at the time, and he said to me, you know, why don't we do a show like Toledo except with wooden boobs and not with the real thing? (laughs) So, So that's how that happened. So then my brother, as usual, said, okay, let's just go do it. Then I had to say to him, they said, let's just go do it. Where's the money coming from to build 100 puppets? Oh, don't worry. We'll get it. Well, while he was at the gym, I was out looking for the money. And, and you know, and that was not easy. Selling so, more Fords. Right. So I'll tell you the truth. The money came from two guys. We lived in Hollywood. One guy was Lido Cleaners. The guy owned the cleaning <laughs> store. He gave me 25000 Oh, my and the, God. I liked the, the, the these real good New York steaks. So I got friendly with a butcher in Hollywood and he gave me another twenty-five.
1: Oh and my were, god Marty, that's amazing. They
2: told me the truth. They never thought they'd get it back, but they liked me. So I had the relationship with these guys. So I got fifty thousand together and then we borrowed the rest from whoever, you know, borrowed, begged and stole from whoever. And then we opened up in the valley with Lake Pay to free, which really brought us, you know, really put us on the map okay? And uh, you know, that was the beginning of turning the thing from an act to a puppet, to a a business.
1: Well, it was, from what I I never got to see it, but I read all about it and I was fascinated by the fact that it was about the the Lido in Paris, so it had to be kind of adult. Was it kind of adult? So, you know, oddly enough, oddly enough, I must
2: tell you that I want. I want to do it again, and I really think I'm going to do it again. But I'm not going to say where. And we're going to Lake establish de Paris and go back to the beginning. And I think if we put this in the right place, that has more, you know, venues, we'll definitely get the overflow.
1: Oh There's my nothing else. goodness gracious! Well would you describe the show that you did in 61 that was so successful and critically well-reviewed, would you describe it as a little naughty?
2: Oh, it was definitely, it was a gimmick, but it was Naughty Pine, you know? <laughs> what naughty, and that's what Jack Parr called it. And oh. Carson called it, uh, what did he call it? He had another sort of nickname for it. But, you know, look, today, you know, Wooden Boobs and What Goes on Today. <laughs> I think we're going to have to move this idea around a little bit.
1: Oh, my goodness. Why well, you mentioned Jack Parr. Jack Parr is the reason I got, I got into television in the first place. He was by far the greatest, the wittiest, and the most sincere and human host of The Tonight Show. And did, did he just see your show, or did he have you and sit on as guests?
2: We were on Jack Parr. Yeah, I got that, that show. You know, this is, look, uh, Sid says, you know, I'm the car salesman, which is good, because you know what? I was the best. Only kidding. They were better than me. But, you know, it's it just, uh, I made these things happen more in a business way, that at least we can survive. But more importantly, I won't mention the name of this guy, but somebody very, famous in the business world always said to me you know marty you made a big mistake you picked the wrong profession if you had been doing what i'm doing he said you'd be running a studio today and uh he was probably a manager or an agent right he wasn't no he was actually the head of a studio oh yeah but the thing that he did say is you know what you did you went you went for love, yeah, you know, you actually went for fame and you didn't go for cash.
1: So that's, uh, that's what I did. Well, you know, uh, Jim Hanson, some of his success, I think can be attributed to his manager, Bernie Brillstein. Uh,
2: well, he was a close friend of mine. And when, and when Jim died, then Bernie was able to take care of us for a short time. But Bernie Brillstein... You know who is real responsible for much of the success at Saturday Night Live and all
1: the yes. talent
2: he had. This is one of the great people of all time, just a super guy.
1: Well, I must tell you, Bernie was my very first manager. He and Jerry Weintraub, and there are wonderful stories about Bernie in my book, my autobi- autobiography, which is called "Your Mother's Not a Virgin." Uh, which is but if you get to it, there are wonderful stories about Bernie. I loved him even after we parted company. And uh, even after when when I met Bernie, he was eighty thousand dollars in debt uh for gambling. He was a very heavy drinker, and of course, his wife salvaged his life, and their hobby was collecting little toy turtles that they kept on the desk. And Bernie was so possessive of his wife who became his secretary that he never let her out of his sight. The only man she ever saw was her gynecologist and then she ran off and married him. But Bernie and I remained friends and went to the hockey games often together in Los Angeles. But you could have been a phenomenal manager and the fact that he helped you after uh, after uh, Jim It's just just wonderful oh, I get
2: short. I'm going to give you a short thing about Bernie Great I was in his office one day Oh I don't know 30 years ago And he said why don't you sell your company Why are you going through all this pain I said well I don't know why Who do you have in mind He says well I got somebody in mind I said that would probably be a good idea So he comes up, Next time I'm there he says okay Let me tell you what happened I got somebody that offered you five hundred thousand dollars for your whole company. I said, You gotta be kidding. Are you kidding? I said, That wouldn't buy lunch for us. So I can't do that. He said, Well how bad a shape are you in? I said, Well not great. I'm independent, we're walking and it ain't easy surviving in this in this world. He said, Really? He said, Okay. He left the room and went somewhere else and came back And he handed me a piece of paper. He said, this is the best I can do. I want to take care of you today. So he handed me a check for $150,000. He says, it's yours. Don't worry.
1: Oh, how wonderful. this was like one of a kind. Oh, my gosh. How wonderful is that? Now, but you know, you you had such phenomenal shows. Now you're talking about bringing back Poupée de Paris, I think one show that you could bring back, I loved it. I think it came on in, like, 1987. It was called D.C. Follies. And now what is happening in America?
2: We tried that one. You know, we tried to do it recently. As a matter of fact, if I swing my Zoom around, I want you to see something. Let me just do it for a second.
1: Okay, go ahead. Can you see it? Oh, my God. How fabulous is that?
2: But you know what? what? we were going to do Trump and Putin, and we taped some. But then while we were taping them, maybe Trump became less funny, became real, you know, wow. So I said, you know what? I don't want to do it right now. Now, DC Follies was more of an entertainment show. And you know what? I could play a lot of those pieces from 1988 and a lot of them still hold, you know, so we haven't done it. We haven't done it yet, but believe me, we we were thinking about it to do this kind of a show because DC was great, except it was syndicated. So you never knew what time you went on.
1: It was, was, it was a show fabulous yet. show, and, and and I thought, oh, gosh, I'm going to get a chance to talk to Marty, because what indeed is going on in this country, and this world today, we need a show like D.C. Follies, because I must tell you quite honestly, Saturday Night Live is not funny anymore. I mean, nobody uh, on television is funny anymore. You can't. I must tell you, if it's not profanity, nobody seems to be looking at it. Marty... I can't tell you one comic, and I love comics. I mean, I did it myself professionally for years and years and years and was very, very good at it, very successful at it. But in those days, you could take a comic and you could hear a joke and you could repeat the line, you could repeat the joke. I can't tell you of one comic today who says anything funny. As a matter of fact...
2: well, what I find with Saturday Night Live, the, the, uh, the best part, most of the time, is the opening. You know, then you start doing those sketches. They're very difficult, even with comedians. When I did Donnie and Marie, and we did the sketches, they were singers. Didn't, it did not work that great, you know. But... Uh,
1: well, let you know, me ask you about that, because, you know, even when talent that I really liked was on The Muffet's, I wouldn't even watch it. If Pavarotti were on as much as I wouldn't watch it. But you got to work, I mean, with, uh, I think, Barbara Mendel. You worked with the Brady Bunch. You did actual shows with Donnie and Marie Osmond. They must have been profitable because they were certainly very good. Oh, no,
2: no, they were fine. Are you kidding? I said I got in a piece of the action. We were the producers. That was the first time... You know, we did prime time. Michael Eisner, Fred Silverman, and I think Bob Iger was involved. They picked us up. They wanted us to do a prime time show. And uh, we went to see them. They were an opening act. They wanted to know, what are going to do with them? It's different. So we did it. We went on. We did a pilot. And we became number one on Friday night for ABC for the first time. And we were the first time prime oh. time.
1: That's that's fabulous that is Then we
2: did Mandrell Barbara Mandrell and the Mandrell sisters on NBC Diamond was on ABC and they're in the top 10 we did a top 10 show there Then why,
1: why did you not because you were so adept at working with live talent Why did you not continue since that's where the money was to work with live talent And instead you were still doing your stuff with your puppets as good as it was, well, they don't talk back. Strike! <laughs> <laughs>
2: right. If no, you know, we, th- we did. a lot of shows. We did. We did more than those two shows. You know, I had Richard Pryor. I had Patti La we, we had. We had. Uh, we had Pink Lady and the two Japanese girls that we put on the air. When America did not want to see that, so we we had
1: you know. That was was prior's That was we prior's, that was we prior's place. That we was, were never
2: in it for the cash. We always were in it, you know, to do good stuff. But well, we you, never copied. our kids shows? We never got a toy and did a show off a toy. You know, we did stuff from scratch.
1: So that you know, so we something right. I got the impression sometimes when I watched some of your stuff that had that kind of edge to it. Is, i i uh, I got the impression that uh that matt uh the guy who created The Simpsons might have been prompted to create that show from watching your work
2: uh so I'm sorry you know what i called my I'm in my office and I've been looking for my assistant for the last thirty minutes, so anyway, but I just found her sorry let me hear that again
1: (laughs) no that uh, what's his name matt Groening, the guy that created the simpsons i always got the impression that he might have created it from watching your work
2: no i don't think so uh i don't think he created the simpsons i thought it was a guy that lived in the palisades that did but the guy that created the Simpsons living on the moon now, he's got so much cash. <laughs> yeah. uh,
1: uh, if you look back now at some of your work, uh, like what would, what is it that you admired the most? Did you like Puffin stuff better than you like Land of the Lost?
2: Well, you know, uh, that's a good question. Uh I can't say I like them all, okay? But uh, I would say, you know, Puffin' Stuff's our first child. So, you know, he started in live shows for Coca-Cola. And, you know, we've been, you know, people think we made it overnight. You know, it doesn't happen. So Puffin', I would say Puffin' Stuff landed the Lost and Sigmund and the Sea Monsters were the three, three that were... You know, I, that I liked a lot, you know, and but of course, I, Puff, I, I,
1: I enjoyed Puff and Stuff, and I remember reading two wonderful reviews of that show. And one of the critics thought that Puff and Stuff meant that Sid and Marty, in order to be this colorful and edgy, had to be talking about smoking something, and that's right. what. It, That's why they call this show Puff and Stuff. So, So, you know,
2: if if all they thought we did was that, that would have been nothing. But, you know, you can't really, you know, if you're stoned and you're watching the show, that's one thing. If you're stoned and you're trying to make something happen, that's almost impossible. You know, so, you know, I don't remember ever going to work in that shape, ever. And you know one thing, John, I don't know if you know this. We've been in business 50 years.
1: Oh, my goodness. Gracious. So
2: I've been running this thing and being creative and mostly, you know, keeping everything alive for 50 years. So that that is uh, of all the talent- is a book of records, because every kid's show company that was in the 70s and 80s are either dead. They sold out or they went bankrupt. We're the only ones left.
1: What, what ventriloquists or puppeteers have you admired in the last 15 or 20 years? I can name one, uh, but tell me one that you could name. Well, there's more than one with
2: me. Uh, the one that comes to my head first is Jim Henson. He was very, very, very talented. Another one was uh, somebody I liked a lot who I knew. I went to visit a number of times Was Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy. He was a trip, Edgar Bergen. He had an office on Sunset Boulevard, and he went to work every
1: day. He reminded me of me. Oh, when I, yeah, because I was going to say when I was a kid in the 40s, Uh, Edgar Bergen uh, was in a couple of movies. I loved Mortimer Sturd and Charlie McCarthy. And then I used to listen to his radio show. But in 1977, they did a revival of Laugh-In. And I was lucky enough to be one of the four writers writing on the show and then performing as their resident critic at large. That was a show that introduced Robin Williams to America, but it introduced... To me, at that time, the funniest puppeteer I'd ever seen, I think his name was Waylon Flowers, and his puppet was Madam. The best. Oh. I was,
2: I was close to that. I was close to him. He was a trip. He was brilliant. And the gal that wound up managing him wound up with uh, Madam, and she came to us many times trying to help or get shows, because Madam was really Waylon. yes. And you know, just for going back to the, to Edgar Bergen, I think that they, my parents called me Mortimer because of Mortimer's third. Oh, that's
1: okay. funny. That's funny. But
2: they loved, you know, that was the guy, though. That guy was, you know, then there was a the guy, what was that other? Paul Winchell.
1: Oh, yes, that's he right. He was great. And he was
2: the one that discovered the, the heart valves, or the one that the heart, some yes, heart, right. he kept to off of that.
1: That's right. I remember that very, very well. Now, with all of the live performers with whom you worked, and I have Richard Pryor in mind when I ask this question, but which one did you prefer work, have the most fun working with of all of the ones that you worked with?
2: Wow. I don't know, you know. uh, Well, between Sinatra, Judy Garland, you know... Uh, Liberace, Tony Martin, Ciceroes—you know the Andrew Sisters. It goes on and on. I'll tell you, I just thought of it. Maxine Andrews, I love.
1: Oh, of the Andrews Sisters. Yeah. Yes. Oh, oh my God! My uh, my third professional job was a stand-up comic as Jane Morgan's opening act, and that was Weintraub's wife. And it was at Calneva Lodge where I opened uh, for Jane Morgan. And afterwards, Maxine came backstage to give me a hug. That's that's when I met her. And I was Sinatra's private writer for four and a half years and Richard Pryor, when I first created the show Real People, which was the first reality show to become a monster hit and ended up on NBC for three years, I had it first at ABC. As a uh, pilot with Danny Arnold, who had done um, Barney Miller, and my uh, Byron Allen was going to be Richard Pryor, but they turned wow. him down. They hated him because at the time he was in uh, he was in custody wow. in jail because he had done a special for NBC. And a censor took out one of the scenes that he, that he preferred. And Richard went in and punched him in the face and they arrested him, put him in uh, county jail. And then the IRS was in the lobby waiting to arrest him for, for back taxes. But well, I told ABC, you don't understand. He's not trouble. He can put 5,000 asses in seats in Berkeley, California. This guy's going to be the biggest star in America. But they passed on it. I loved Richard.
2: Right. Richard was special. I had two years with him. And uh, I had two years of very interesting stories. I talked to him about every night, called me. And, uh, you know, he was a professional. You know, he was, he was out there. You know, but you know what? There was He started it all. He's, this guy, you know, Byron Allen, everybody got it from him.
1: You got to give it to
2: Byron Allen. Byron Allen, he gets He's he's been doing good. Still doing good. Good for him. Late night, he has been on for a long time.
1: Yeah. Well, what Byron Allen was smart enough to do, he was smart enough to uh, uh, barter his shows. In other words, what he would do is he'd gather a bunch of comics together, or maybe puppeteers like yourself, and form a panel. And he would pay for it, and then he would give it to a thousand stations around the country. He would keep 15 minutes of that time, give 15 minutes to the station, and that's how he got to be rich. He learned how to make money. But the truth is, there isn't one show that he does that is worth watching. Not one. Byron Allen
2: was a baby when I met his mother. And his mother worked for NBC, and yes. was the PR lady for the Puffin Stuff, our first show.
1: So oh. I go back. Yeah, oh, I go back. Serendipity. Yeah. Well, you know, he, he was, uh, in the second year, he became one of the hosts of Real People, along with myself and Sarah Purcell and Skip Stevenson, and he was going to USC at the time. And we had to hire... A really smart USC graduate, black girl who was one of our researchers, to do his homework. He was oh. not. Yes, he was. I don't. I. I have a couple of stories that are not very complimentary about him, but I'm not going to repeat them here. They're in the book, but they're fabulous, funny stories. But I am so glad that anybody in this country is doing as well as Byron does, because while the work he creates. I think is just negligible. The jobs he creates for people is immensely important. And he creates hundreds of great jobs for people. I got to
2: give it to him. You know, you don't have to like his shows like him. He, he's proven to be around and he's around for a long time. And he will be, he got a formula. He, he went on the air when nobody wanted to because of the egos. Why would I do my thing at three in the morning? And he didn't care. But he made it all work.
1: Exactly. Now, tell me about, tell me about Sid. Uh, w- were both of you married? Do you have children?
2: Well, you know, he has, he tells me he has one. I've never met him. Okay, <laughs> So that's, that's, he's up in Canada, this kid. So I I figure well, eventually he'll show up before I'm dead. And uh, so he has no family. And, uh. He's got his house. He's got the gym. He's got people. You know, he has a good life, I guess. As far as me, I've got three daughters. I'm lucky. Christina, Diana, and Kendra, and they're all, you know, they all uh, are good people, talented. Diana, you know, runs the the company here with me, and uh, she's a great producer. We just finished about a year and a half ago doing 73 episodes on Nickelodeon of mud and stuff with 15 dogs. We had live dogs. And uh, so that was a success. And there's all this stuff going on and I'm here. I've been here at CBS now since last June. I've been coming to work every day. I couldn't stand working out of my my bedroom on my bed. So,
1: so your daughters have been better to you than King Lear's daughters were to him. Well, so that, I
2: hope so. I Although they're also talented, and they're nice girls. They grew up in L.A., which is not easy. And so I've got, a, you know, I've got, what, we've got five grandkids. But don't tell anybody. I have a great-grandson, Maddox, who's like five, oh. who's the comedian of the whole family.
1: That is so wonderful. We got well, plenty you, of
2: cross coming, especially Deanna. and then I got my other two daughters, Diana, Chris, Christina, and Kendra. Uh,
1: you guys were—you said that Sid was ten years older than you. He's actually almost nine. Not, okay. So in, in two, th- it wasn't until 2018 uh, when. He must have been well into his eighties before the uh, the Emmys finally recognized your talents and your work, your lifetime of monumentally different, creative, effective work. And you guys in 2018 were granted the Lifetime Achievement Awards by the Emmys.
2: Then I made sure that I got the star <laughs> one week before the pandemic. So they and we got. I wanted that star in front of the Funko company's front door because they spent eight million dollars coming to L.A. with all of their pop characters, and Funko's a great company. So that was one week before the pandemic. We got the star, and of course, you're talking about
1: the star on Hollywood Boulevard, right? Yeah, right, right. So we got it right in
2: front of their front door. So we have, you know, we do have a merchandising thing with the pops with them that. You know, Brian Mariotti started the company, you know, not long ago. Came to see me. He wanted to, to license a sleeve stack from Land of the Lost, a bobblehead. But I don't think he had any money to even pay in advance. So that's how I started with him. We're still together.
1: That's
2: right.
1: I hate to say this or even ask you this. Do you miss your brother a lot? Oh, Sid? Yeah.
2: Why do I miss him? (laughs) He's still alive. Oh. Did you know that? No. His His, work?
1: Wow. His work? Oh, no. He's
2: very alive. In fact, he's doing an Instagram. So I come every (laughs) Sunday if someone calls me and says, wow. I said, no, no, it just never happened. Okay. okay, He remembers what didn't happen. I remember what happened.
1: Okay, if he's buried alive. Is but that alive. The, Okay. So it, it's a, is that the inscription on his tombstone? Because to me, the greatest inscription I ever heard of was Robert Frost's. The inscription in his tombstone says, Dear God, uh please forgive all the little jokes I played on thee, and I will forgive the great big one you played on me. Oh, that's good. So, yeah. So is there something like that on Sid's tombstone? And what would you like put on yours? God, I hate to ask that question, but maybe you've thought of it.
2: Oh, uh, you know what? I live in the moment. That is something I haven't thought about. Honest to goodness. thing. time I see you,
1: I'll come up with it. Okay. Well, because I hate to tell you, I, I'm exactly like you. I live in the moment. Uh, uh, the past is gone. There, is, there is no f- future. It's just the moment. But at one weak moment, uh, Marty, I did come up with uh, what I wanted on my tombstone. What was that? Well, I, I, my, I'm, I'm a junkie golfer. I would have to cut back to be a junkie. I play golf every afternoon and gamble once. Uh, playing golf for fun is no. Fun, so I gamble a lot when I play golf. The only time I gamble, and I'm a sort of a religious non-believer, so what I wanted on my tombstone was another lousy lie. So, oh, for but my wife said, "No, we'll cremate you instead." But that's where I'm going. I don't want a tombstone. Well, why should I
2: spend the money on a tombstone after I'm dead? So She's I get to uh, get
1: burned. Okay. <laughs> I get the distinct impression with the help of your three daughters and being at CBS and finally finding your assistant today, what are your plans now for your next project? What are my plans?
2: Well, you know, there's an expression. If you want to give God a good laugh, tell him what your plans are. <laughs> Call him. And he knows. Because you know what? The few plans I know about, I was told by my father, always keep your big mouth shut. (laughs) Uh Because you know what? Who knows when plans come true? All I know is we deal in the moment. We've done a lot of moments. You know, I have no regrets. You know, who, who expected, you know, us? You know, I lived in the Bronx. I was glad I'm alive. Okay? So anyway, so... You'll have to, for, you'll more be revealed on some of these last things you brought up. You are a trip, John.
1: <laughs> oh, well, I must tell you, Marty, you are absolutely delighted. You're, you're really right when you say that your brother is alive and you'll always be alive because your work will go on forever and ever. So I'm going to ask one last question because with Puff and Stuff and a couple of, your material, I mean, your stuff on screen is arresting to the eyes. It's almost impossible not to look at what you do. It's so colorful. And there's one critic that talked about the fact were they smoking something? They brought up the business of LSD. Do you happen to remember in the 50s that LSD was made popular to America by Cary Grant? Do no. You remember? Cary Grant wrote, hear that. yeah, in the 50s, Cary Grant wrote a series of articles for the Saturday Evening Post. There were about four or five of them. And he was applauding the use of his psychiatrist treating him with LSD because he wanted to be Cary Grant on the screen. He didn't want to be the Archie Leach that he was born with. So I just wondered if you had ever heard that story and I bring it up because one critic thought, those guys are so colorful, they must be on something.
2: Well, you know what? I, I We already discussed that for a minute. You know, first of all, acid and those things would have never, ever been in my life. A drug that controls you for four days, two days, three days, drugs are bad to begin with. You know, so That is not really, I mean, look, if if I did drugs like everybody thought, how the hell could I show up every day at 7.30 in the morning? Except if I was in an ambulance coming here. Well, you're
1: absolutely right, because there's no greater drug than being in the sunshine with vitamin D and breathing oxygen and being drug-free. I mean, life itself is a magnificent drug to get high on. And I can't thank you enough, Marty, for being with us because, as I said in the beginning, I just love, I love comic characters, I love puppeteers, because I remember in the 70s when the Vietnam War was at its worst and the criminal carnage was just dreadful, it was only Pogo in a comic strip that said, I have seen the enemy and he is us. And had any live person said that on television, they would have been out of work. But it's a truism. And a lot of the stuff that you guys did reeked of entertaining truth. So again, thank you so much for your lifetime achievement. I'm glad you got it in 2018. And I hope to see you again. Well, I, I am really
2: happy. I was looking forward to doing this with you, job. You were always somebody that was a good person and great talent. You're a big, big winner, and I I love being here with you. And I hope we get to see each other in person, you know, and have a, a lunch together one day.
1: Oh, listen, I would do that, and I would come to – I'm going to Los Angeles the first week in, in uh, November. There's a fellow named Stu Shostak who has the greatest, one of the greatest sites I've ever seen. He preserves classic television. And of course, he's preserving a lot of my stuff on Real People because that was the first reality show on classic television. And he's going to do a three-hour show devoted to some of the shows that I did. So I'll be in Los Angeles for a few days, and I will get a hold of Harlan and tell him I want to greet Marty. Marty. And if he wants to bring his wife, uh, his uh, daughters, or whatever, to the luncheon, I'd love to treat you. It'd be hey, my down, treat.
2: Where are you? Where I, I
1: I live in uh, Las Vegas, and uh, I came here twenty years ago um, uh, because I had been uh, Bob Goulet's opening act at one time as and Bobby Darren's opening act we were the last act to work the Sands Hotel before they tore it tore it down and I thought was, we were You <laughs> we were
2: okay
1: but the uh, thing is there was no state tax up here and I was on a retirement income and this was the perfect place great place to play golf it's open 24 hours and the golf course is the only place that I you know what I wish I was sorry to hear that Jerry's Deli closed, but Art's Deli is still open. So that's the best. Yeah, it, it, do you want to know something? When I was in the 50s, when I first, I came illegally twice to the United States. I was deported twice. But when I was in uh, uh, Los Angeles the first time, I opened up a little theater over a Russian restaurant on Ventura Boulevard. And I went around selling ads. From my little theater group. And the first ad I th- sold was to Art at Art's oh Deli. It was $5. He only had six stools at a bar. And then it grew into this magnificent, fabulous deli. The best in the country, I think. So if you're up to it, that's where we'll go. Right. Now, just one last thing on Vegas. We played about seven hotels.
2: But the problem is there's no records of them. Because they've all been imploded. (laughs) Really? They've all been imploded. Absolutely.
1: That's that's funny. You should, oh, you know what? If you, oh, it's too bad. You probably could get newsreel footage of that. And you put the six in together. And here's, here, this history of Sid and Marty Croft in Las Vegas. And his six explosions.
2: That would be John, beautiful. you are
1: the best. You, this was great. Oh well, thank you so much. I, if I were, I, I said this to my first guest, Eddie Muller, who was a very literate host of Noir Alley on TCM. If I were a religious person, Marty, I'd say God bless you. But you, you, you are a treasure, and continue to be a treasure. Thank and you. I see you in Los Angeles, and I will feed you.
2: All right, so we're going to make a date.
1: We are going to make a date, definitely. And thank you so much again. For All getting... right, hey, good luck. Okay, bye-bye. You could hear me loudly and clearly during the conversation with Marty that I said a number of times how original and how colorful they were. So to verify that and let you see that, it's only fair that we close this episode with a couple of excerpts of... Their fantastic and fabulous work. And the first clip we're going to show you is the one that called, Marty called his first child, his firstborn. And that was puffing stuff. And then the next clip is from my favorite show of theirs, what I, which I think, should be revived to this day because we could certainly use it. And even though this is from the eighties, it is much funnier and much more compelling and arresting and colorful than Saturday Night Live in 2021. And that's DC Follies. And then we're gonna close with a clip of the funniest puppet either one of us ever saw. And that was L- Waylon Flowers Madam. And there's going to be a brief exchange of quips between Madam and the one and only Phyllis Diller. And that's how we're going to end the show. And so the next time you see Talking Movies, you'll be seeing me talking to author Carol Hainig about her fabulous gem of a book called The Greatest Reviews I Ever Read. So until the next time we're Talking Movies, Stay well and good luck.
0: on a trip far across the sea
2: but the boat belonged to a cookie or witch who had in mind the flute to snitch from her broom broom in the
0: sky she watched her plans materialize she waved her one the beautiful boat was gone the skies grew dark the sea grew rough and the boat sailed on and on and on and on
2: stuff was watching too and knew exactly what to do he saw the witch's bold attack and as the boy was fighting back
0: he called his rescue racer crew as often they'd rehearsed and off to save the boy boy they flew but who would get there first but But now the boy had washed ashore puff arrived to save the day which made the witch so mad and sore she shook her fist and screamed away H.R. sharp, pumpkin stuff. Who's your friend when things get rough? It's sharp, and stuff. Can't do a little because you can't do enough. It's sharp, pumpkin stuff. Who's your friend when things get rough? It's sharp, pumpkin stuff. Can't do a little because you can't do enough. I would like to do a straight interview with you and find out something about you. Oh, well, I think that's a good idea. Go ahead. All right. You know, Phyllis, it's common knowledge. You've had a million facelifts. That's why I won't kiss you on the cheeks. Who knows where they started out? (laughs) You said no jokes. Sorry, it just slipped out. You know, I've been thinking about getting a nose job for some time. Oh, wonderful. That'll put half the country back to work.